Lavoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jim Klug is the founder and CEO of Yellow Dog Fishing Adventures, a travel company that arranges fly fishing trips to lodges around the globe. Over the years, Jim has worked as a guide, sales rep, photographer, and filmmaker, though today he is busier than ever managing the Yellow Dog headquarters in Montana. In this episode of Anchored, Jim and I talk about being a booking agent in the fishing industry, how to deal with upset clients, and the importance of staying up to date on the legislation and policies that impact the places we love. I grew up in Central Oregon and uh, in the town of Bend, which was a great place at the time to grow up. It used to be a small mill town. It's obviously gotten a lot larger over the years and, and changed quite a bit, but great place to be a kid. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up in the fly fishing industry. My first job, I was about 13 or 14, worked at a local fly shop. Which one? It's called the Fly Box. It was uh, owned by a guy named Alan Stewart. Okay. And my buddy Jeff Perrin and I worked there. Jeff is still in the industry. He owns a, a fly shop in Sisters, Oregon, but we were kids and uh, we would be in the back bagging hooks and cutting up materials and then sweeping the floors. And that was kind of the uh, the start of my my fly fishing career path back in the day. I graduated high school in the late 80s, came and, and drove through Montana on my way to college that first year in, in New Hampshire, where I was going to school. And the second I drove through Montana, I was like, oh yeah, th- I'm going to live here. And, and that was 28 years ago or however long it's been. Did you come from a pretty free-spirited family? You know, I I, uh, or I don't know earthy, that they were... earthy family? No, not at all. I mean, they're, they're pretty buttoned up, but... You know, they were free-spirited in the sense that my parents really told us to go out and explore the world, find our path. There were not a lot of rules or expectations, which was great. And one of my favorite lines, which I still use with my own young kids today, or actually I don't use it with them. I use it with a lot of young people I meet in the industry. When my kids get older, I'll probably use it with them. But uh, my dad told me when I think I turned 20 or 21, he said, you know, God gives you your 20s for free. And don't forget that. Go out live life, travel, explore, see great things, do it all, and fit it all into your 20s. He said, if you show up and you're 30 and you're lost and you're drifting and you have no idea what you're going to want to do with your life, then we're going to have a conversation. He said, but go out and, and live it all in your 20s. And that was great advice. You know, I, um, I did, uh, still working in fly fishing and, and traveling and seeing the world and doing all kinds of great things, guiding and outfitting. And uh, I loved every moment of it, and it uh, really created a solid foundation for, I think, where I am today. But Yeah, that's, that is um, great advice. Yeah, I, I always loved that, and I never forgot it. It's one of the most impactful things, I think, my dad's ever told me, and uh, hopefully I've, I've stayed true to it. Now, you just covered a lot of ground there in like two sentences. So you you went to college after I, high school? I did. You yeah. were fishing all through high school? I was. Yeah, who I grew who up got fishing. you into it? What? Um, actually, great story. I had a next door neighbor because my parents didn't really fish. My grandfather fished. He taught me. But when it came to the fly fishing world, I lived next to a really interesting guy named Craig Lacey, and he owned a company called Whitewater and Wild Fish. He was uh, one of the uh, original kind of Northwest radical fish politicians out there, steelhead junkie, uh, trying to, to save the anadromous fish and the wild fish. He started a group with a couple other guys called Oregon Trout, which at the time was. Uh, really at the forefront of fisheries conservation and wild fish protection. When I was about 16, he offered me a job working for him in the summer. He ran multi-day steelhead trips on the Deschutes, and he hired me as a, a gear swamper. So I ran gear boats and 
learned how to row whitewater and, and got to spend time around really some of the best fishing guides out there. And I always look back on it as just this super valuable kind of apprenticeship, you know, paying your dues a little bit, but sitting in the background and learning from people that had been around for a long time. He was a, a phenomenal mentor for me and really kind of helped get me uh, going on this path that, that led to, you know, what all these years later has been a great career. Was there a guide back then who you used to look up to and think, oh, I, I want to be him when I grow up? <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of them, and I think they're all in prison now, so i got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. but, no, there were, there were a couple that were just legendary guides. And, and actually, in all honesty, April, my biggest mentor in this industry from the time I was 14 years old was a guy we all know named Brian O'Keefe. Oh, and O'Keefe, yeah, he, Oregonian. Oregonian. I grew up, you know, was in Bend. And he used to hire my buddy Jeff and I to watch his house when he would go on all these fantastic adventures fishing around the world. I don't know why. He didn't have plants. He didn't have cats. He didn't have a girlfriend. I mean, there was nothing to watch. Because he doesn't want it to flood, which did happen to him. Yes, that's true. <laughs> it actually did, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't flood on my watch, which right. is important to mention. But we, uh, I'll never forget, we would go over to his house and we'd walk in and he would have rooms of gear. I mean, just the most phenomenal fly tying setups and gear rooms and you know, one office full of nothing but fly rods. And we would say, oh, this is the coolest job in the world. I, I'm going to be a fly fishing sales rep when I grow up, or I'm going to work in the fly fishing industry. And he's the one that definitely kind of led me down the road to ruin and uh, was was certainly the biggest mentor in my fly fishing life. The pieces are all coming together, They're all, <laughs> and we'll get to those pieces. Okay, um, so what happened next then? Did you end up, you obviously ended up guiding. I guided for a lot of years, guided uh, through college. I uh, went to school in New Hampshire, in a little town called Hanover, and then would come back west in the summers and guide, save up money for the school year ahead. What were you taking in school? Uh, I did uh, government and environmental studies. Uh, went have to school. you used that at all in your career? I have. I have um, it, on a lot of different levels, especially uh, a lot of conservation work that we've been involved in over the years, for cool. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but have, have uh, really been involved in politics here in Montana for a lot of years, and, and something I enjoy as crazy and insane as it is. It's is it's po- fun. politics. Politics, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and and it's something we can talk about too. But I would love to talk about politics. Yeah, I just I I would be I'm all about that. <laughs> well, I I think not to get off on a tangent, but um, you know the industry that we work in in, in fly fishing. We have businesses, or maybe it's just our passion, or it's our hobby, whatever it is. But you know, with things the way they are today, it, you really can't afford to just stay out of it and sit on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to get engaged. We've got to be paying attention to these issues. We've got to be willing to speak up for these issues and get involved. Because if we don't, you know, we as as anglers, we as outdoor sportsmen, we as nature lovers, or however you want to kind of uh, quantify every, everything that we're we're about, you get steamrolled these days, and we have to. Be engaged, and we have to speak up. It's it's never been more important than it is today. Yeah, it really sucks because I obviously I'm being sarcastic. I hate talking about politics, and I admitted <laughs> earlier I know nothing about them. But more recently, you know, I just got on the board of directors with the Wild Salmon Center, and I've been talking to regional biologists in British Columbia, and I've realized I really don't, I don't have a choice. I'm going to have to really understand this political thing asap. We all do, and and you know we'd all like to forget about it and. Step into a pair of waders and head out onto the water, and and only worry about what's in front of us, and you know what fly we're fishing, and where the fish are sitting in a run. Right? I mean, that's that's really would be great to worry about nothing but that. 
But unfortunately, we don't have that luxury these days. We got to get engaged and we got to pay attention. Yeah, or just at least have an idea of what's going an idea. on. Yeah, and, right. and and vote. Yeah, and you got to get out and vote. Yeah. <laughs> people say, "Oh my God, how did how does this craziness happen to us?" It's like too many people stayed home and were apathetic and they I didn't know. get involved, and they're so, so offended by it. I, I yeah. especially in America, I watch other friends on the, even on Instagram, you know, and they're like, you know, please go out and vote today, and yeah. and the comments are like, "Why would you even go? Why would you even bring that up? Why why are you talking about voting?" And I'm going, "Well." But why wouldn't you talk about I mean they're yeah. not he or she's not telling you which way to vote. Right. But shouldn't she be voting? I mean, isn't there a reason for 100%. having that that opportunity? <laughs> you know, there is. And and I know we just go from tangent to tangent. Sorry. But it brings up so much great stuff, which I love. You know, I've been fortunate enough to travel to so many countries around the world and spend time in pretty distant places and, and undeveloped places, a lot of third world places and the one thing that people in so many of these destinations would kill for is the ability to vote mm-hmm. and have it matter. And so, yeah, I, I think it's something we can never take for granted. I think as an American, it's uh, you know the most important thing we can do. And and as people that love the outdoors, that care about <laughs> we issues, are in yellow dog. Yeah, we got dogs everywhere here. Um, you know, it's, it's something that you got to do. Yeah, let's bring it back to you. So, okay. did, did you guide in Montana? Yeah, let's let's talk more about me. Yeah, let's talk. Oh, I did. It's all about you, Jim. Yeah, I got it in uh, in in Oregon. I got it in Montana. Okay. I uh, spent some time guiding in Colorado and New Mexico. Were you guiding steelhead in Oregon? I was on the Deschutes back oh, in the day. What What yeah. are your thoughts between? Did you prefer guiding for steelhead or did you prefer guiding for trout? Uh, oh, now forget politics. Now we're really going to get interesting here, right? <laughs> um, you know, I love fishing for steelhead. Um, I never felt like I was quite there guiding for steelhead again. I was young when I was back there and I saw so many people that have been doing it for so long. I always felt like I, you know, that was something I was going to aspire to. And we would do that on, on especially the day trips and whatnot. You were always hoping for steelhead. But, you know, then you'd look at those guys that were doing the coastal rivers and, mm-hmm. you know, especially some of the guys up in the OP and whatnot in the Northwest there, and they were just legends. So I, I spent a lot more time guiding trout. Uh, and then, of course, you know, making the trip out here uh, to move to Montana and spending time out there, that's obviously what it was all about. So, What was the move for? You know, again, it was uh, growing up in, in Bend at the time. Back when I was a kid, it was just a small you know, mill town. It was a great place to be a kid. Um, that started changing pretty quickly. When I came through Montana, it was like, all right, this reminds me of the town I grew up in as a kid. I'm gonna, you know, I felt right at home immediately and knew that this is where I was going to live. Oh, okay, so the town yeah. brought you here. It wasn't something else that brought you here. No, it was really just everything that Montana's about. I mean, I came for the fishing and you know, stayed for the lifestyle, as they say. It was just a wonderful place to be. The, you know, the people of Montana are amazing. And it, uh, it, was, it wasn't quite like a you know, Maine or someplace like that where it's like, you know, unless your grandfather grew up here, you're still an outsider. I mean, right. the thing about Montana is, is a lot of people have come here from other places. You know, you do meet native Montanans, but they're usually the exception rather than the rule, <laughs> right. for sure. Now, where do you go from there? Graduated in four years from Dartmouth, and uh, then decided I was going to come out and guide for one or two more years, and then figure out my path in life, right? Because you were in your free yeah. 20s. My free 20s. I could do it all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was 28 Jim years ago. Jim also has yeah. 12 children. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, six ex-wives. He pays for none man. of them yeah. because he was in his free 20s. Yeah, right. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> But no, you know, and uh, I, I've been married uh, to my wonderful wife now for almost 15 years. We have three beautiful young kids, and there is no better place to be raised in a family than here in Montana, that's for sure. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Okay, so talk to me about your next step in your career. Well, 
you know, I stayed in, involved in fly fishing um, from guiding. I then, you know, followed in O'Keefe's footsteps. I became a sales rep. Um, I ended what, up. What were you repping? Uh, I repped a number of different product lines, Scott and Ross Reels and Scientific Anglers, a bunch of different products over the years in the Northern Rockies here. That led me to a position with a company called Scientific Anglers that was owned by 3M at the time. They hired me to become their national sales manager, which at the time I was definitely in over my head. But uh, I did that. I agreed to move to St. Paul, Minnesota, which was 3M corporate headquarters. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. They used to be owned by 3M. And I got there and settled into my 3M cubicle at world headquarters there. And I thought, you know, the irony of this is I chose the fly fishing path to avoid corporate America. And here we are, Fly Fishing's led me to this, you know, Fortune 100 company and this habit trail of thousands of people in, in St. Paul where it's cold and frozen and there's lots of mosquitoes in the summertime and there's not a lot of trout. Oh, and I should say apologies to people that live there because they, of course, love their fishing. But it wasn't Montana, put it that way. And so uh, I did that for just under two years. And that whole time I had been kind of thinking about um, more of the travel side of things. And that's what led to starting Yellow Dog. We've now... Uh, been at it 19 years since I started the company. Why did you start thinking about the travel side? Because who who was in business then? It was Frontiers. Yeah. Uh, probably a, a multitude of personalities. Yeah. Who else were who, who were the big booking you agents? You know, a lot of the big ones are gone now, but I like know. Kaufman, Streamborn, Coffins, they were yeah. legendary, right? Yeah, One of the yeah. great fly shops and great travel services at the time. I mean, those guys blazed some serious trails. You know, Fishing International, some of these big companies that had been around for years, and, and even Frontiers at the time, you know, those guys were such pioneers in the sport. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I didn't really set out to get into the, the travel game as far as becoming a booking agent. Mostly I was traveling for myself. I was spending a lot of time in Belize down then. Oh, okay, and, uh, which makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so my good uh, friend uh, named Logan Gentry, he had bought El Pescador Lodge. Logan isn't with us anymore. He, he uh, passed away in, in an accident years ago. The, that boating accident? Yes, oh, exactly. I'm sorry, yeah. But uh, it was a great friend, and, and for years I, I was going down, traveling, spending time with Logan, bringing buddies down. They would have friends that wanted advice. Somebody's dad would call up and say, hey, I've got six buddies. We're thinking about Belize. We understand you go a lot. What can you tell us? And so it just kind of started taking on a life of its own. I never really, in the beginning, thought, okay, I'm going to become a booking agent. I just started talking about Belize and sending people down. And on one trip, Logan sat me down at the lodge, and I'll never forget it. He pulled out some numbers, and he said, you know, I've been looking at all the business you've been sending here. You really ought to think about starting a booking company. Because you weren't taking a commission or anything at that point? No. But you were probably fishing there for free? Well, I was fishing, for sure. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't full retail. But, uh, you know, it... it, uh, I started thinking about it like anything, and, and I thought, you know, this is no way. There's there's too many people doing it. It's too crowded, and you know, it still is today in a lot of ways. But the more I started looking at it, the more I realized, yeah, there's a lot of big players. It, it might be a crowded um, environment as far as competition goes, but I think it could be done better. And I think there are some some things we could bring that other people aren't necessarily doing. And with that, we I walked away from my job at 3M and Scientific Anglers and hung out my shingle and about. Four months later, the planes hit my building and or the buildings in New York, and 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 nine eleven occurred, and everyone stopped traveling, and no one went anywhere. And I thought, right. this is a horrible mistake. What have I done? Um, why, I couldn't have picked a worse time to be in the travel business, obviously. But you know, things uh, uh, obviously bounced back, and and uh, you know, the the country dealt with that horrible tragedy. And after probably a, a year of 
not a lot of travel, people started getting comfortable with with venturing out again. And at that point, you know, we were set up as a company to kind of handle that and grow with it. And it's been great since. Um, we in the beginning we started out as a one man and one dog operation. Yeah, I was going to say it was just yeah. you in the beginning. In the right? beginning, yeah, it was. And, and and you you went about it so differently from a marketing stance. I mean, from the name to the logo, yeah. from the people you were working with, it was cool. Well, it was fun, and you know the thing about it is I I would travel to so many different lodges when I was out and about on my own. And as I was thinking about this business plan and putting it together. I would talk to people when I met them at different lodges and in random airport bars, you know, with fly rods sitting at their feet. And we'd start talking about the places they had been. And I would inevitably ask them about, well, how'd you get there? How'd you hear about it? Who did you book with? Mm-hmm. And it was so funny. They'd say, oh, it was uh, adventure, um, extremes. It was extreme adventuring. Oh, God, what is the name of that? I can't yeah. remember. Because so many of the companies had names that were so similar. Yeah. And um, I wanted something that was totally different. And in the beginning, when we launched Yellow Dog, and I put the name out there, people thought, well, what does this have to do with fishing? This is such a strange name. And I would say, yeah, but you remembered it. Right. And and you still do. And so it's been great. You know, we uh, started out as a one-man operation doing nothing but booking four lodges in Belize. Those were the early days. And from there, we've grown. We now have about, uh, see, 28 employees here in Bozeman. We work in 27 different countries, and we have about... 208 different lodges and, and outfitters that we work with and represent. So, so it's I can been, no longer yeah. just blame you as being the person who's going around slapping that sticker everywhere because I will be in the middle of nowhere <laughs> on this planet and I'm like, God dang it, yellow dog stickers are everywhere. I can't escape them. No, it's become bigger than me. I, I will admit I tagged my fair share of uh, you know bar room walls <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and airport uh, you know, locations over the years, but now it's definitely become bigger than me. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been fun though. You know, it's been great and it's taken us to some amazing places. I've been so fortunate to work with so many great people and meet so many great people. And that, I will tell you, April, that is my absolute number one favorite thing about fly fishing is as a general rule, it is filled with good people. Yeah. You meet some difficult people every now and then, but they are definitely the exception. By and large, this is an industry that's just full of wonderful, creative, amazing, warm, friendly people, and that's the favorite, my favorite thing about what I do, for sure. And it shows. It shows. I mean, you can't even get into you at a trade show. You've got people lining up to talk to you. You, you know everybody <laughs> in the industry. Well, it's it's a small industry, put it that way. <laughs> True. Yeah. yeah, once I get past those three people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's wide open yeah. for the rest of the day. It's just that easy. But, you know, I first heard of you, or you, not, I'd heard of you before this, but you were really on my radar when you guys shot that film that was with film. Yeah. And, and you had O'Keefe in it, which is yeah. why, you know, a lot of these pieces are coming together. It was shot so well. What was that film called again? So we started a, a side project, uh, a, a friend named Chris Patterson and I, Back in 2007. and Yeah, what are we in? Yep, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. Yep. Yeah, and the, the company was called Confluence Films. So Chris, his wife Anna, my wife Hillary, they were college roommates. And so Chris and I you know, were introduced. And at the time, and, and still today, Chris was the head director and head cinematographer for Warren Miller Ski Films. Uh-huh. So okay, yep, total yep, street yep. cred, right? As mm-hmm. good as it gets in the outdoor action sports world, this guy is, is you know, is the deal. And so we started talking and we got to know each other and he said, you know, I, I don't know anything about fly fishing, but we should do a movie about fly fishing. I was like, I don't know anything about filmmaking and I have no desire to make a movie. <laughs> That's like, just, you know, not at all interested. But we started talking a little bit more and, he, and Chris's pitch to me was like, I don't think you understand what I'm talking about. We could take and apply this same kind of Warren Miller-esque formula that's worked for, you know, at that point. 
55, 60 years. I think they're going on 70 years now with right. Warren Miller films. He said this, this great kind of lineup of these different stories and these different profiles and all these amazing places that you are already operating in through Yellow Dog, and we can put it to film and we can talk about these you know, great personalities and great characters and great destinations, and it'll work. And the more we started talking about it, I thought, all right, well, we can do this. And so I would put the destinations together and create the stories and do the writing and kind of come up with who the characters that we profiled were going to be, put it all together, and then just get out of his way and let him work his magic of filmmaking. And he was such a talented guy. We ended up making five different films. The first one I remember seeing, it was in the Denver Retailer Show yep, or whatever. That was Drift. That was our first one. Yes. And yeah. I just remember sitting there in that tent thing outside. Yeah. And I just remember being yeah. like salivating, being like, this, that's a permit? I mean, I knew that was what a permit was, but I'd never seen it like that. And and look at the hazels and, oh, Steelhead looks so romantic. I mean, to me, you guys took the bar films that night and you changed it in my eyes forever. That's that's nice of you. Did and and I would say that that's all Chris. I mean, he's that good of a cinematographer. But is sure. it just that it is it just in my head or were was it really that far ahead of what fishing films were at that time? Well, you know, the cool thing if you look back on the first fly fishing films that were made, I mean, it was low-budget projects like Tom Buy's Feeding Time, which was awesome, right? Like a, a, just a compilation of these video clips that you're shot in Jackson over the years. I mean, these were the guys that started it. And right. then the, the AEG guys, you know, they went out and, and did some really cool stuff. And so all of a sudden, filmmaking becomes this thing in fly fishing where it never was before. And it was all great. You know, I'm, I'm such a fan of those, those early works because they really started things moving. Yeah, and those tro- guys trope bums changed everything. Totally. But they didn't shoot it like you guys did. I well, mean, these were guys on, you know, they're yeah. dirt bags with, with handhelds. Yeah, totally. And but- and Chris, you know, this is what he did. And, and I think prior to shooting our first movie, he had been down in LA doing all the action cinematography for a Will Smith movie. Right. You know, he does, he's, you know, worked with Leonardo DiCaprio shooting Inception and the winter sports scenes. And that. I mean, okay. Chris is the real deal. Yeah. And so... You know, to be able to tap into his skill set and his talents and bring that to the world of fly fishing, yeah, I, I do think it it kind of upped things a, a bit. But it was, you know, it was one of, of several projects, many projects, I guess, in a progression of just great films that have done so much for the sport, so much to put fly fishing out there in front of people that would have said, yeah, I, I know fly fishing is my stodgy old grandfather did it. And then all of a sudden they're watching these films shot around the world for crazy species with interesting people in, in amazing locations that are thinking, wow, fly fishing is actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. And so, you know, to advance the sport and to do great things for our sport and for participation in the sport, I think it's just been critical and, and it's done so much. Yeah. Has it helped your business? It has. I mean, I'd be lying if I said it didn't. It, <laughs> you know, it was a, a, a phenomenal kind of cross-marketing tool for Yellow Dog and definitely helped us grow as, as a booking company because, you know, yeah, we we showed great places and profiled neat people and showed all these beautiful fish species that can put on a fly, and it just so happens that Yellow Dog can also book those destinations. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was a it was a cross marketing deal that worked out very well for us. Let's talk about it working out very well for you. Yeah. Today's industry, I mean, everybody's a booking agent. Yeah. Are there more people doing it now than there were back then, or is that just my own? Am I just assuming that? Well, put it this way: it's it's easier for somebody who's a, a hobbyist who basically wants to be quote unquote a booking agent so they can get some free trips or you know or some, maybe I should say there deals. are more hosts than ever before. They are and, and now of course everybody can have a website. So it's like, you know, bro dog adventure travel. Here we are. And and 
and, you know, it's somebody who's operating off his laptop, sitting in his living room, watching Monday Night Football. Um, and I, I don't begrudge that at all. I mean, everyone's got to kind of get started somewhere. And the fact is, there's a lot of people that love to travel, and, and people see this as a way to do it. But you know, they're they're hobbyists, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But the question is, what value does it bring to the traveler, to the the customer and the consumer? And you know, here's the reality of of the business that we're in in destination angling today. There's a lot of good material out on the website. Lodges now have the ability to take direct bookings. They have really flashy websites. They've got great information. It's not enough for us just to sit there and wait for the phone to ring and take your money and, and process a reservation. We have to bring a great deal of additional value to the process. It's so much work. Too. It's so much work. And and here's the thing. You can get there and it'll be a good trip. But as we like to say, our job for the same exact cost, for no additional fees, for anything else, we have to pick up the ball. We have to move things forward for you. We have to provide you with so much information and support and what we always like to call kind of the backstage pass type information that we take that good trip and we make it a great trip. And it is, it's the difference between going to a concert and you're like, yeah, you know, I was kind of up in the nosebleeds and it was good. You know, sound was fine. Looked like the band was cool. Couldn't really see because I was far away, but it was good. And then you're like, well, um, they grabbed me. They brought me backstage. I was standing there on stage. I had you know, an experience that nobody else would have. It was amazing. It was beyond great. You know, that's basically how we try to compare fishing experiences. We want to provide Yellow Dog customers with that backstage pass type access to the world of fly fishing. And, you know, we do it by having a great team. You, April, know a lot of the people that work here and that are involved with Yellow Dog, some of the best people in the industry, some of the most experienced. And, you know, the cool thing about the business model that we've created is we don't own these lodges. So we can be 100% honest and direct at all times. We can tell you all the great reasons you should go to this particular destination. Then we can also tell you the shortcomings. We can give you the pros, we can give you the cons, because it's not our operation. What we tell people all the time, and I think this is an important message, is when we start talking about getting you somewhere to fish, we say, look, you got to understand one thing. We don't care where you go. People say, well, well, what do you mean you don't care? It's like, well, you have to understand. We're not obligated to send you to any one place. What we care about is figuring out what the best fit is for you, what's going to meet your expectations, and then getting you to exactly the right spot. So you're there, you walk out of the flats, and you think, man, Yellow Dog nailed it. This is exactly what I wanted. And that's really our philosophy and the way we do things, and it's, it's worked out well. You're kind of like a traveling bartender. You have to listen to everyone's story and gauge <laughs> who they are, their personalities, and then what's the best fit for you. That's right. So do you ever tire of that? I mean, are, are you done with hosting? Are you more of the corporate guy now or, or the, the office guy? God, do I look like the corporate guy now? Holy cow, I, I, I have a sweater on. Maybe it's throwing you. No, yeah. but you do. In trade shows, you do look like a corporate guy. Uh, you know, it, that's a good question. I um, the the. Quick answer is no, I absolutely never tire of it. I mean, I think I have the greatest job in the world. And, you know, I often wondered when I started, you know, how long can this go on? How long before it gets old? That's never happened. I wake up every day fired up to either, you know, be where I am, where this trip is taking me and travels, or to come in here in the office and just work with the team that we have. It's, uh, I do feel like I have the greatest job in the world. Do you think you guys have a cooler clientele? I was, I was speaking about this with Camille. I feel like you guys have a, a cooler clientele. Because you are so cutting edge, and you have all these wonderful people that you work with, and that yeah. you you send on these hosted trips. That's that's a good question, and and actually, no one's ever asked me that before. But you know, I, I think that what it comes down to are a couple of basic things. One, I think we're we're legitimate, and everybody 
today, especially in fly fishing or even the greater outdoor world, that when you're in the business, when you're you know working in the industry, you want to project that authenticity and that legitimacy. And it's something that brands pay big money to try to put out there. It's like, hey, look how real we are. Look how authentic we are. I don't think in the world of what we do that you can fake that. I think if you look around at the team that we have working here at Yellow Dog, if you look at the backgrounds of people like Sean Lawson and John Hudgens and Doug McKnight and Tom Melvin, all these people that have been at it for a long time, you know, these are guides and lodge managers and shop owners, people that have, you know, like me and my path have grown up in this industry. And so I think, you know, that legitimacy is something that people can recognize. You can't buy it. You can't force it. It has to be earned. And I think that's a big part of why um, we attract a really good clientele. But I think the other part of it is that, you know, getting back to your question just a moment ago, we love what we do and we have fun with it. And it's pretty funny. We, I actually had this happen yesterday morning. We, uh, Every once in a while, we'll get we'll get a call from a client. They just come in hot, right? They come in hot. And it's like Doctor So and So from no. They come in hot from like you know it's Doctor So and So from you know Manhattan. You know he lives in New York or he's from L.A. And they pick up the phone and they are used to being a total hard ass to get uh-huh. their way. It's like if you're not you know if you're being nice, you're giving blood, right? Like you got to come in hot and just you know steamroll everybody. Uh-huh. And we'll get that occasionally. And, and I'll get someone on the phone or and, and my team knows like hey if that happens, just put them on the phone with Jim and I'll say, all right, all right, you know, Dr. Dr. Smith, hold on a second. And I got to t- say, they're almost always doctors, by the way. And I know this because as soon as you said, it just came flooding and they're almost like, for me, they were always neurosurgeons. What is wrong with you guys? Well, and, and they're neurosurgeons. You know, they're used to, they're used to a fast pace, right? <laughs> right. A lot of people are. And, and if you live in a big city yeah. and if you, you know, maybe you work in finance, maybe you're an sure. attorney, you know, you're a hedge fund guy, like you, you come in hot and that's how right. you get things done. So what do you do when he so calls? I'll, I'll get him on the phone. And I'll say, Hey, Hey, you know, Dr. So-and-so, um, Hold on, hold on a second. I, I got to stop you, man. Listen, you're you're talking to a group of people. We live in Bozeman, Montana, and you know what? We're really, really nice people, and we're here to make your trip great. We're here to take care of you, and we want this to be a good experience. We want it to be fun. But boy, you are you are rolling hard and coming in hot on this, and You'll almost oh to a T. Oh. And and nine times out of ten, April, they'll take a deep breath and they're like, oh, you know what? Man, thank you. No, no one ever points that out, and you're absolutely right. And oh God, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to, you know, be so direct. And it's like, oh, it's okay. But listen, we're here to deal with something that you love. I'm not here selling you life insurance or disability insurance, something you have have to have. Like this is your one thing in life that you love, and let's make it fun and let's make it happy. And when you talk to Yellow Dog on the phone, you talk to anyone here in the office, I want you to be stoked about it. Yeah, it's got to be good. Because if not, then we're not the right fit for you. Well, have you fired people? I fired clients. Have you ever done that? I, I have. And I'll tell you what, first 10 years of the business, I never did. But now we do. And, and you know, if people come in and they're, they're rude to our team or they're just difficult people who are probably happiest when they're unhappy, mm-hmm. that's not a good fit for us. And trust me, we don't do it often. Uh, you know, I, we value no, no, it's people's like one, business. It's like one a year. Yeah, the we, blacklist is like we one want, a year. We want to take care of people, but we want to... We want to work with people that want to work with us. We want them to be happy. We want to deliver great experiences. And if that's impossible to do, then we're probably not the right fit. But it's it's rare. It's very rare. You know, most of the people we work with, I'd say 98% are wonderful people. Mm-hmm. They're happy. They're excited about what we're doing here. And um, they come back because we take great care of them. That's the most important thing. Do you ever have people just go right above you direct to the lodge? It doesn't cost the consumer anything or the customer anything. I mean, the lodge pays you guys, right? That's right. So here's how it works. Let's say you're going on a bonefish trip and it's $4,000. You can book that with the lodge. 
directly for $4,000. You can book it with one of our competitors for $4,000, or you can book it with us for $4,000. So there's no savings. And, you know, people always think, especially in this day and age, right? It's like, hey, you know, I'm smart. I'm smarter than most people out there. and I can get a deal. I can work something out and I can get a deal. So I'm just going to go direct. Everybody tries it. That's okay. The lodges that we're strongest with, that we have these this great relationship with and that we're just as loyal to them as they are to us, they they don't play that game. They say, no, you know, Yellow Dog brought you to the table. No problem. We're happy to help you with dates and information. Um, but, you know, Yellow Dog is going to handle this for you. And by the way, we're, you're not going to get a better deal from us. Um, the good lodges, the lodges that we do a, a really high volume with, they get that and they're very loyal. And then the customers, after you know, inevitably most people give that a try just because that's what we're conditioned to these days, right? There's got to be a better deal out there somewhere. Well, the best deal is being taken care of, getting all this additional information and the support and this technical expertise and you know the A to Z um, access to our team on everything that's going to make your trip great, right? That's where you're getting ahead. And once our customers realize that, they're very loyal too. You know, we have people that come back that. You know, they're, you know, we had one couple that just did their 35th trip with us. And these were all big trips. And that's 12, 14 years of travel. But, uh, you know, that that's the best is, is working with people who understand the value of what we bring to the table, understand that we don't add a dime to the equation. We get, as you said, Avery, we get paid on the back end by the lodges in the form of commission. So there's no fees. And, um, yeah, people do try to go direct with the lodges when the lodges play that game. Well, we don't work with those lodges. No, I was going to just say, when a client goes to the lodge, you guys keep it so that when they come back, even if they go direct, they still come back through you guys, right? Yeah, they they should. Uh, But at the same time, if we're not bringing something to the table, if we're not adding value to that equation, then we shouldn't get anything to it. I mean, if sure. we're just sitting back waiting for the, you know the lodge to pay us or for you know money to be sent into our account, I don't want that booking. I mean, we have to provide enough of a service and do a good job so that those people want to work with us, so that we're adding something to the equation. Because too many quote unquote booking agents or hobbyists or you know the group that you brought up a few moments ago. That's kind of their business model. They're looking for free trips and maybe some commissions on referrals. But that, you know, referring is very different than booking and handling someone's trip. We have to bring a lot to the equation and and make those those trips so much better than they would be on their own. That's what we do. And and if we're not doing that, then we should get out of the way. Yeah. That's well, my let, philosophy. Let me ask you this. This is actually something I was not going to ask you, but it just came flooding back to me. I remember recently there was this enormous thread on on Facebook uh, uh, regarding New Zealand lodges and and you know is there too much pressure? Are we loving New Zealand to death? And the Kiwis and I love the Kiwis, but they had some very interesting viewpoints. And one of them was you know these lodges they're bringing in they've got these booking agents and fifteen percent or twenty percent of each of these of these trips is not going towards our economy. It's being taken out directly and going to these booking agents. Furthermore, they're like some of these hosts, and this is nothing to do with Yellow Dog, by the way. But right. some of these hosts are illegally guiding. What are your thoughts on, on money being taken out of the economy, and also with some of these hosts who who are illegally guiding? Well, the the last question is an easy one. I mean, that's inexcusable. Should never be tolerated, no matter where in the world you are. Um, as someone that grew up guiding and doing it the right way, and you know who's lucky enough to work with a team of, of former and even some current guides, you know you got to you got to be legitimate. <laughs> you can't be illegal. Anything fly by night um, deserves all the wrath and and the the shots that are being taken there. So there's never an excuse for that, period. Anywhere in the world, New Zealand or anywhere else. Do you think it's a gray area though? I mean, the host is in the boat. Whether you have 
two guides. I mean, typically you've got one guide per two guys, right? Right. So really, even if the host is there guiding that other person, as long as there's a guide for two guides, is it a gray area? Not really, because a host is a host. A host is, you know, the trip leader. But you know, we host dozens of trips around the world every year. But it's always fishing with local guides. We're employing local guides, no matter where we are. We're yeah. staying at the lodges. We're bringing money into those economies. To the, to the other point of, you know, oh, they're taking fifteen to twenty percent booking commissions for for sending English here, bringing English here. Yeah, we are. And you know what? Try marketing your operation on an international basis for less than 15 to 20%. You'd be looking at 40 to 60%. It's the locals saying it, not the lodge. The lodge owners love you guys. Oh, no, no, for sure. But, you know, the lodges, you know, they understand the value of that marketing. They also understand that, you know, we don't charge endorsement fees. It's like, you know, you'll never go anywhere and see, oh, here's a yellow dog endorsed lodge outfitter guy. We don't do that because that's a pay to play deal. We bring trips, and for the business that we generate directly, we get commissions. We don't have fees, just like we don't charge our clients' fees. We don't charge our lodges' fees, which I think is important. But I'm, I'm so glad you brought this question up about New Zealand, because I think it, it gets to a bigger question, and one that's so important these days, and especially in the, in the realm that you know, we operate in. And, and people will say, geez, whether it's New Zealand or you know, the Bahamas or the Seychelles or Alaska, you're sending a lot of people into these places that otherwise wouldn't get there. You know, now the rivers might be more crowded. There's more pressure on these fisheries. There's more tension, certainly. How do you feel about that? And, you know, as an angler, we clearly would love to break the key off in the door, lock it behind us, and, <laughs> and have no one else on our water, right? That's, that's the angler side of us talking about. Sure. But it gets back to something we talked about in the very beginning of this program. You know, politics. You've got to have politics. <laughs> it all gets back to politics. You've got to have a base of people involved that care, that are engaged. You have to have people who are willing to speak up for and fight for and roll up their sleeves and work for the things we care about, the resources that we care about. We have never, ever seen such an assault on the resources that matter to the outdoor industry, to fishing and fly fishing specifically is what we're seeing right now, whether it's Pebble Mine, whether it's the Smith River, where it's you know the mining issues, the deforestation issues, the you know blocking of access. So... All, as anglers, those things really infuriate us, right? We step up, we say, oh, but God, we can't let them build a mine here. Oh, my God, they can't take away our access to these rivers. Oh, my God, what do you mean? Regulations that are going to basically close off the flats to people that want to fish on their own. This doesn't make any sense. We know we can't allow this to stand. Well, guess what? If there's 11 of us that are making noise about this, that stuff happens. And it's only when you have a lot of people who are engaged in the sport, who care about the sport, who are willing to sound off and fight for what they care about, that's how we protect what matters. So, you know, yeah, we, we are creating more anglers and we're getting more people engaged in fly fishing. We're bringing more people to the sport. But let me tell you, our sport needs that right now. And if you don't think that that's a serious enough issue to care about, well, then I would say you're part of the problem because, you know, we, we, uh, we are losing that outdoor connection in our country and throughout the world right now. And you know, the uh, grandfather or the father or the mother or, you know, the older sister, whoever it is that, you know, is, is teaching their, their son or their grandchild or their sibling to get out and appreciate and experience the outdoors and to fish and to hunt and to, you know, do all the things that so many of us grew up, got to grow up doing, you know, that's disappearing right now because there's an app for that, right? You know, people are looking on their phone and, and we are losing our participatory base in this sport. We need people engage. We need people that care about the things that we all care about as anglers and hunters and outdoors people. And when you lose that, you lose your your 
political voice and all of a sudden the things that you care about are gone. Are you able to use your platform? Could you, for example, take all of the clients who go to Alaska, would you feel comfortable sending them a newsletter saying, this is what's happening right now? Can you guys sign this petition or um, could you guys contribute some money? Where do you draw the line on your personal versus professional lines? That That's an awesome question. I'm actually glad you asked that because <laughs> it's something that we as a company talk about a lot because we are passionate and we are politically engaged. And you know, the the smart thing as a business is to shut up and focus on your product and don't get engaged in those things. And while I love the fly fishing industry and I love the people that work in this industry, I'm very frustrated on a very routine basis by the lack of participation when it comes to speaking up and putting yourself out there, not just as a person, but as a company. And 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 you bring up that great point. We do have connection to tens of thousands of clients. We do have some sway and certainly the ability to communicate with these people. and People with money. People with money and people who have the resources to help in these issues. And so, you know, we've made a conscientious decision to sound off and to become more politically engaged than we probably should as a company, you know, according to a lot of people's advice. It's like, you better be careful. It's like, well... I'm not going to put campaign signs for a presidential candidate out in the front yard, you know, in front of our office. You know, I will draw the line at things like that. But when it comes to conservation battles and, you know, issues like land and water conservation fund and, and the recent I-186 issue, the Clean Water Initiative here in Montana, and certainly issues having to do with Pebble Mine in Alaska, I'm perfectly fine putting our company out there and putting the voice and the connections and the communicative abilities of our company out there to try to push these issues because it matters. It's important. And you know what? We may offend some people that way. You know, we, uh, (laughs) on the Smith River deal here in Montana, that's a proposed uh, mine at the headwaters of Sheep Creek, which is an important tributary. We've been vocal and involved in that since the get-go. I wrote a lot of letters. I did a lot of of testimonies on that. And I got a... uh, (laughs) a letter from the Montana Mining Association a couple of years ago, and they said, uh, our members are boycotting Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. And I said, oh, God, this is, this is not what I wanted. This is terrible. Went to their website. It's like, well, if those 33 people don't want to you know, fish with Yellow Dog, and I can't imagine many of them are fly fishing to begin with, I'm okay with that trade-off. I, I can live with that. And you know, you don't want to alienate customers or potential customers, but you got you to gotta speak up for what matters. You have to. We don't have the luxury of staying silent on this. And you know, my one message to the rest of the fly fishing community is, God, don't stick your head in the sand on this stuff. We cannot afford it. We are under assault in way too many ways in the resources we care about and our access, especially such an important issue, um, that you got to speak up and speak out. You have to do it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Thank you.